we're in Revelation 6, and uh, if you could turn there with me, we'll read it together. And we'll see just how thankful I am by the end of it. Then I saw, a lamb, saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out as with a voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow. A crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Then he opened the se- when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature call out, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that pe- people would slaughter one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out, Come! I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's pay, and three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature call out, Come! I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered by the word of God, uh, for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the, number would, uh, until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters, who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and there came a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree drops its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll, rolling itself up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Let's pray. Lord, may this word from the past come alive in the present. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. When you're asked to preach on the book of Revelation, you find yourself fairly quickly crossing every finger and every toe and praying to God that you may get given one of the seven letters to the seven churches that are much easier to preach on. And you hope, like anything, you won't be given a passage about the sun um, turning to blood, you know, the moon turning to blood, the sun going black, the, the sky rolling up like a scroll and people running for the mountains and crying out, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Um, but as it turns out, instead of being given um, one of the seven churches or perhaps a passage about the heavenly choir singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, I have been given the passage that's on chaos um, and uncreation. And it would seem that this is a harder task than having one of the seven letters to the seven churches or having the great multitude singing holy, holy, holy as the Lord God Almighty was and is and is to come. But actually in the same way that I think it's easier to preach on Good Friday than it is to preach on Easter Sunday, I think this text in some ways is easier 
to preach on than the others. Because it doesn't take much of an imagination, just like Good Friday, it doesn't take much of an imagination to realize that if there's someone who stands in the way of a major superpower, they will be arrested. And when they're taken out to the back room and no one's looking, they will be beaten up. There will be a group that cook up some evidence and convict that person. And then that person will be gotten rid of. That's the stuff that we know about. That doesn't take any imagination at all. Famines and wars takes, we see that stuff every night on our TV. But resurrection or um, peace triumphing over hate, love triumphing over death, someone getting up out of the grave, that's the stuff that takes imagination. It takes no imagination to believe another megalomaniac is lording it over their underlings. We see that on our TV every single night. We see global financial crises, people queuing up for food, people dying of starvation, famines and earthquakes. We know this stuff. We know it too well. Because in some ways we've kind of gotten used to this type of thing because we know it so well. Maybe we've gotten a little too used to it. That this is the way of the world and we have learned to get along in it. Last week, Reuben spoke about Revelation 5 and this vision of the great mighty lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is what John hears about. But what John sees is a slain lamb. And the image isn't that there's a lion and a lamb. The image is that there's a, the lion is a slain lamb. You don't get both options. And Reuben made the point that this invites us to be the people of lamb power. Lamb power. Not those who conquer, but those who are conquered by self-giving love. But there's a sense that you want to say to Reuben, Reuben, that's fine in the lab on a Sunday. That works well in the lab. But in the real world, if you rock up with a little bit of lamb power, um, you're really not going to get by. I mean, lamb power is fine for church on Sunday, but in the real world, you need some more powerful power than lamb power. You need a little lion power in the real world. I mean, you just try going to work on Monday and using a little bit of lamb power. I, mean, I was a mechanic. If I turned up with lamb power, I would be the one that got the hiding day after day, week after week. That's where lamb power gets you. In the real world, you need a little bit of lion power. Lamb power is fine for Sundays, but in the real world, we need a little bit of lion power. Blessed are the meek says the lamb in his laboratory. It works well in church on Sundays, but in the real world, it's blessed are the meek, for they will get to taste the tread on everyone else's shoes. Blessed are the peacemakers, says the lamb, for they will get done to them what they're too chicken to do to anyone else. See, lamb power doesn't work in the real world. In the real world, you need real power. If you look seriously at the kind of realities that we are facing, be it global terrorism, be it global financial crises, be it people dying of HIV virus, be it people dying of malaria, be it people dying around the globe from starvation. We look up from looking at those daunting realities, we look towards this cross where the crucified God is, and we say to God, we need some real power. None of this wussy lamb power, we need a little bit of lion power. And God, if you don't hurry up and get down from there and start 
acting like a real God with a little bit of real power, well then we'll just do it for you. And actually that's exactly what we do do. We use a little bit of lion power in the workplace. In the boardroom where we need to get a decision made and one that we want, we just use a little bit of lion power. At home with our spouses, just at the right time, we use a little bit of lion power to get our own way. With our kids, you know, I'm a dad. With our kids, there's only so far you can say, I forgive you for, you know, not cleaning your room yet again. You know, I forgive you for not being bothered to get up and get to school. There's only so far that takes you until you have to use a little bit of lion power. Like, get up, clean your room, get moving. And we bully our kids a little bit. You just, just a little bit. Because you need a little bit of lion power to get by in the real world. In foreign policy, sometimes you need a little bit of lion power to teach them a lesson. To teach the people we don't like a lesson. This is the passage that seems to finally give us what we want. In Revelation 6, finally it seems God is going to give us a little bit of lion power. Finally, we see four horses marauding across the earth, bringing with them indiscriminate destruction. And how we've interpreted this to mean is God brings indiscriminate destruction to all those people we never liked anyway. Finally, they're going to get their comeuppance. Those people who never agreed with us and didn't believe what we believed are finally going to get their comeuppance. And in, our, in many of the interpretations, we're up in the clouds watching on with a bit of popcorn from the grandstands of heaven as God brings their comeuppance upon them. And it seems in the passage that Jesus is on the first horse that comes out of the gate. He's the rider on the white horse. And this seems to be the case because in Revelation 19, you get the same language. And look, there was a rider on a white horse. There was a white horse with a rider on it. And that's clearly in Revelation 19, Jesus. And here we have the same language. And I looked and there was a white horse with a rider on it. It seems that these two horses are the same. The same rider is on them. But that's the point that John wants to make. He wants you to think that these seem the same. But what John is doing is he's playing a little game with you. See, there are significant differences between these two riders, but they're very subtle so that only the trained eye can see the differences. The point John's making is that this horse, that we're, this rider that we're looking at in Revelation 6 is a parody of what comes in Revelation 19, the true rider on the white horse. And white is an image of victory in Revelation. This rider looks like Jesus, but he's not at all. Jesus, the image that's given in 19, is the one who brings about his victory by the sword of his mouth. Not through wielding a more powerful power, but the sword of his mouth. His powerful word is what brings about his victory. Here, it's one who has a bow, a weapon of warfare. The difference between the two riders is how they bring about their victory, their conquest. The rider in this passage uses a weapon of warfare. Jesus uses his powerful word to bring about his victory. They're different kinds of victory. This rider is an imitation. This rider is a fake. This rider is a parody of the true victorious rider who comes in 19. 
Because what John is imaging here is the Roman Empire, the empire of his day with their imperial power and their whole ideology about power, that Rome is the most powerful and have brought about stunning victories. This was Rome's ideology of victory. So that in Egypt, they found inscriptions as far as Egypt saying, Rome always wins. Or Julius Caesar used to say, I came, I saw, I conquered. This was the kind of language that was used all the time around Rome and its powerful power. And part of the Roman imperial ideology um, and propaganda was the use of this goddess called Nike or Nike. Um, And the, the goddess Nike was the one who assured that Rome would always conquer, was always victorious. And there's a... Um, there's been a whole lot of archaeology around this that they've found more and more um, coins and parts of Roman propaganda that show that Nikkei plays a key part in Rome's understanding of their victory. And so Nikkei is the one that they found on a frieze from a temple in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, there's an image of Nikkei um, within the temple, part of their Roman understanding where she had brought the victory for Rome. On Roman coins, Nikkei was the one who was standing at the front of the Roman longboat, crowning it victorious. Or on other coins that they had, they'd have Nikkei there crowning the Roman chariot as victorious Nikkei. Or on the Ark of Titus, where you have the emperor coming and bringing behind him the spoils of conquest and victory, there is Nikkei crowning the emperor victorious. This was how Rome understood itself to be. Rome always won. Rome was always victorious. And what John does is he takes the Roman understanding of victory and he contrasts it with Jesus and his victory. One has been victory through conquest and slaughter. The other has been victory through being conquered and being slaughtered. The difference is you have lion power and victory through lamb power. And John deliberately contrasts them and he uses this word Nikkei throughout the whole of Revelation and he uses it in key parts to show the difference between lion power and lamb power. So that in Revelation 6 that we're looking at, the rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he, came and he rode out as a conqueror, Nikkei, bent on conquest, Nikkei. This is using this key word that all the, those who lived in the Roman Empire understood what was being referred to. In Revelation 11, now when they had finished their testimony, um, these are the two witnesses, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower Nikkei and kill them. In Revelation 13, it was given, this is the beast, was given power to make war against God's people and to conquer them, Nikkei. Same word again. This is the way of lion power. This is the most powerful power that we understand. And John, this is lion power, and John contrasts lion power with lamb power. So the images of the lamb are these. In Revelation 5, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. There's no more powerful power than these kind of images. Has triumphed, Nikkei. And what does John see? A slain lamb. And then in Revelation 17, they will make war. The nations will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them. Nikkei, because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. How are those who follow Jesus to conquer? By walking in his way, the way of lamb power. 
the way that refuses to collude with lion power, most powerful power. And so when we are desperate in our churches thinking, if only we had more money, if only we had bigger buildings, then we could do something really amazing for the Lord. We have to ask ourselves, are we colluding with lion power? Are our assumptions based on lamb power or lion power? In Revelation 12, they, the followers of Jesus, triumphed, Nikkei, over him, the beast, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. How do the followers of Jesus triumph? By holding fast to the way of Jesus, no matter what. The way of lamb power, no matter what. And for many, it costs their lives. And then in Revelation 21, those who are victorious, Nikkei, will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And remember the promises to the seven churches? To those who overcome, to those who are victorious, I will give. It's this word Nikkei again. John is deliberately contrasting the way of Rome with the way of Jesus Christ, that they are very different ways of conquering. They're absolutely different ways, and it's critical for us to understand this. Otherwise, we think that you're allowed to have a little bit of lion power to get by in this world, when actually the faithful followers of the Lamb refuse to collude with lion power. The four horses that we read about in this book, in this section of Scripture, are those who come with lion power. And so there's kind of a natural consequence to each of them. This is a flowing effect of those who pursue lion power and the way of lion power. The first is you have one who comes conquering and to conquer. Nikkei, remember? So the first movement is conquest. The second, we have a rider on a, re- on a red horse. And its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. So you have conquest, then you have war, slaughter. And in Rome, part of their Roman propaganda, you know, Rome had its own gospel. Um, in Rome, they used the word euangelion, you know, good news, the good news of the Roman Empire. They had their own Lord, Curios, that was Caesar. And they had their own peace, the Pax Romana, which was, we'll have peace if I have to kill every last one of you. Here, what's, what's happened? You have a conqueror bent on conquest, then you have war and peace, this great ideal of Roman peace is taken from, it's no peace at all. So conquest, war, and then the third horse comes out and it's famine. And the image that's given is that you people crying out, a quart of wheat for a day's pay and three quarts of barley for a day's pay. And a quart of wheat is about enough to feed one person. So the image is you work one day and you get enough to eat and that's it. But the problem is, of course, what if you have to feed more than yourself? Well, the answer comes. Well, you can get three quarts of barley for a day's pay. Barley is what you'd normally feed your horse. But if you work for a day, you could take that barley and feed a small family. This is what's happening. Conquest, war, famine, and then this image of a pale green horse. Its rider's name was death and Hades followed, which is, of course, death. This is the way we go when it goes with lion power. Conquest, war, famine, and death. And it's happening in our world right now in places like Syria. It's happened in places like Congo. It's happened in places like Zimbabwe. Um, You can see images of Zimbabwe, $10 billion notes being printed, that by the time the person got out of the store with them, they were worthless. It's happening in our world now. This way of lion power, conquest, war, famine, and then death. There was a missionary that went to work in Africa, 
amongst, um, where in Africa, again, people have an inability to get access to so many medicines we have in the West. But he worked amongst the HIV prostitutes, those, those who were prostituting themselves in Africa with a huge risk of HIV AIDS. And he said to one of the prostitutes, he said to a woman, look, please don't do this. Do you realize how dangerous it is, the kind of work you're doing with HIV so prevalent? And she said, well, look, it's, it's kind of just survival at the moment in this place. And he said, please don't do it. You, know, you will die. And so the prostitute said to him, look, doctor, if, how, if I get AIDS, how long will it take before I die? And the doctor said, well, you'll start with HIV, then it'll move to AIDS, and probably you'll die in about five years. And then the prostitute said to him, doctor, if I don't eat, how long before I die? And the doctor said, about six weeks. She said, doctor, if you were me, which would you take? Five years or six weeks? People around the world are facing horrific issues. Horrific issues. And the book of the Revelation speaks directly into these things. God brings judgment upon the world for these horrific ways of lion power. Why is it that global Millennium Development Goals were set where people in the majority world like ourselves, nations would offer money to alleviate extreme poverty, that we could eradicate extreme poverty within this generation. And governments ended up reneging on their commitments to this eradication of extreme poverty and access to clean drinking water and all those simple things that can be done. And, and governments reneged on it and weren't able to access the billions that they'd promised. And yet when the global financial crisis hit, suddenly there weren't just billions available to bail out our nations, there were trillions of dollars available. In this, in this passage, God judges this world for these ways of lion power. And how God judges this world is to say to us, fine, have it your way. Your will be done. Go the way you are so determined to go. Go the way of lion power. And the earth descends into chaos. It's an image of the earth undoing itself through these obsessive ways of lion power. It's an image of uncreation as the earth kind of lets go as God's loving hand is lifted from it. God allows us to go the way we are determined to go. And still, as we read on in the passage, people refuse to turn to God and trust him. Instead, where do we go? We run and we hide from God like Adam and Eve. And where do we hide? We hide in the earth. We hide from God by the safety of the earth. That's how we get away from God. God allows these horses to come. He allows the way of conquest to go ahead. And we, instead of turning to God, hide from God. As the earth descends to chaos, we refuse to turn to God and trust him. And it tells us something about the nature of disaster, doesn't it? And this is true in Christchurch. I have friends who are in Christchurch and part of the rebuilding of Christchurch and particularly churches after the earthquake. And they say in Christchurch, disaster does not bring revival. The, ch the churches in Christchurch are struggling. They are declining 
there hasn't been the revival. When I was in the, in the pastor, I used to get these letters from, from some zealous Christians who would say, the Lord, I've had a word from the Lord and the Lord is going to bring a great earthquake upon this city and it will shake it to the core and people will turn to God. And it was a desire, an earnest desire to see people return to God. But it was a hope that God would unleash some powerful power and then people would turn to God. Well, that's happened in a horrific way in Christchurch and people haven't turned to God. Disaster doesn't bring revival. It takes a different kind of thing to change the human heart than just more powerful power. Notice also in this passage that Christians are not saved from suffering. Christians are saved through suffering. When the fifth seal's opened, those who have been slaughtered for the word of God and for their testimony they have given, they cry out in a loud voice, Sovereign and Lord, holy and true, how long? before you judge and avenge our blood. These are the words of those who have, been, who have suffered under the weight of standing fast to the way of Jesus in the midst of lion power. They're not saved from suffering, they're saved through suffering by being faithful to Jesus in the midst of suffering. And yet so often when Western Christians have read this text, we've understood it to mean that we will be raptured up into heaven there we will sit in the grandstands and we will watch as everyone else suffers. Those who don't believe what we believe, those who aren't like us, they'll get wasted by God. But this text isn't written to comfort the comfortable, which is us. This text is written to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That's what Revelation does. It's a double-edged sword that so often our Western interpretations are based upon our desire for comfort and our desire for power. That God would be on our side and waste our enemies and that we would remain comfortable. Brother Andrew, who wrote the book God Smugglers, many of you will know it, um, he wrote this, speaking of Christians who went over with this kind of theology to China. He said, many missionaries in China were there before the revolution, who were there before the revolution, were not allowed back by the Christians after communism took over because the missionaries had said, before the big troubles begin, there will be a rapture. But the Chinese said, we've gone through the great tribulation. You know, they were slaughtered, literally, and there was no rapture. You were liars. You know, don't come back. Western interpretations are often based upon our love for comfort and our assumptions about power. And when we read these, these kind of sections out of Revelation, we find it uncomfortable to hear the talk of suffering, to hear the language about judgment. We find it uncomfortable and think, well, you know, that's kind of a bit over the top. That's because actually Revelation was written for struggling Christians. My old lecturer on this book used to say, Revelation is bagpipes for strugglers. You know how bagpipes kind of gets under your skin and it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. That's what this is. It's hope for those in the, who are struggling, hope for those who are suffering. It's bagpipes for strugglers, but it afflicts the comfortable. Alan Bosak, who writes in the midst of um, apartheid South Africa, um, as he worked against apartheid, wrote this on this passage. God takes up the cause of the poor and the oppressed precisely because in this world their voices are not heard, not even by those who call themselves Christians like us. 
God even has to take up the cause of the poor against Christians. Christians who enjoy the fruits of injustice without a murmur, who remain silent as the defenseless are slaughtered, dare not become indignant when the suffering people of God echo the prayers of the Psalms and pray for deliverance and judgment. And yet that's so often what we do. If we've sat by silently, kind of numbly watching the TV as we see people suffering around the globe through unjust political regimes and we've said nothing, then we need to be quiet as they raise their voice and cry for God to judge, for God to intervene. Revelation is resistance literature. You know, it's written out of a prison. It's jailbird literature. It's written by those who are struggling. And it makes us uncomfortable because it asks the question, are we colluding with beastly powers? Are we making people suffer by the way that we are living? Are people in majority world contexts suffering because of our passion to consume more and more clothes? Answer yes. These are the kinds of demands this text makes upon us. This is the, this is the sting that's in this passage. That suffering and judgment are offered in this text. And it's good news for those who are needing to be comforted. But it's not great news. It's a call to wake up to those who are so comfortable. But I do want to say that Revelation, in Revelation, judgment is not ultimate. Judgment in Revelation is penultimate. So it means that judgment isn't God's goal. God doesn't get a kick out of judgment. Judgment is there to wake us up, to shake us, and to call us to faithful living in the way of the Lamb. That's what judgment's there for. So as we read on in chapter 7, you have the four angels are told to hold back the judgment of God. It's kind of like, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. Why? Because there's more people to be won from unrighteousness to righteousness. God wants to seal more people for his kingdom. So not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. There's more to be won over. God doesn't get a kick out of judgment. Judgment is not ultimate. It's penultimate. Ultimate is the renewal of everything by land power. This is the goal of the book of the Revelation. In Revelation 6, you have this language of come that's given to the four horses. And that very word is echoed in Revelation 22. And in Revelation 22, it's not come to the judgment of God, but come to the new heavens and the new earth. That's the call. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty, come. Judgment is penultimate. It's not ultimate. We are called to be those who come out of Babylon and who come into the ways of the new Jerusalem. We're to come out of these ways of uncreation that wreck the very heart of who God is and ruin this world and cause it to go to the ways of uncreation and move towards the way of the Lamb, which is God's ultimate desire and intention for the earth. We are those who are called to refuse to collude with the ways of beastly power. Martin Luther King wrote this, and this is as he stood in the way of the Lamb, refusing to participate in the ways of violence in the States in the 60s. And he said this, 
you know, committed to the way of the lamb and nonviolence. He said this, for through murder, you may murder a murderer, but you can't murder murder. Through violence, you may murder a liar, but you can't establish truth. Through violence, uh, you may murder a hater, but you can't murder hate through violence. Darkness cannot put out darkness. Only light can do that. And it's really interesting that when Osama bin Laden was shot dead, this went viral on Facebook to try and interpret what had happened. We're called to be those who refuse to collude with lion power. Let me finish with the story of um, A.J. Musty, another um, preacher who was committed to the ways of nonviolence. What A.J. Musty did was during the Vietnam War, he went and stood outside the White House and he held a candle for peace. And day after day, he stood outside the White House holding this candle for peace. Rain, hail, sun, whatever it was, he held this candle for peace. And a reporter got wind of this and they went up and said to AJ Musty, you know, Mr. Musty, do you really think that holding a candle for peace day after day, in the rain, in the sun, whatever it is, that holding a candle for peace will make any difference to the daunting realities that we face? You know, it's not going to change a thing. And AJ Musty said, I'm sorry, but you don't understand. <laughs> I don't stand here holding a candle for peace in order to change the world. I stand here holding a candle for peace so that the world will not change me. We are called to be those who walk in the way of the lamb and refuse to collude with the ways of lion power. We are called to be those who walk in the way of the lamb no matter what, no matter what. And may God so let it be. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.